I'd ask you to uh, take out your Bibles and turn, if you would, to Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesian Christians. As today, we are going to be starting a new book. Specifically, we're going to be going through this particular epistle of Paul's. Hopefully, you will remember something about Ephesus. If not, I will... will, Bring it back to your memory. Thank you for letting me know my microphone was off. Um, and uh, together we will uh, uh, discuss uh, the, the setting, the reason he wrote, the people he was writing to, uh, the date, and things like that. So we have a better idea of uh, what Ephesians is all about, seeing it in its proper setting. Um, I believe there'll be, in a little while, there'll be a map, uh, so you'll be reminded of where uh, Ephesus is. Just as a a side note, um, we are actually hoping this March to visit Ephesus, uh, which for me will be uh, an amazing experience. It is is kind of um, funny. I've spent my entire life as a pastor. well, I haven't spent my entire life as a pastor. That's, uh, that's obviously ridiculous. But uh, during my entire time as a pastor, I've spent all of it, obviously, uh, talking about places I've never visited, uh, not in an earthly sense. So um, it will be an opportunity to, to go and see uh, the area where uh, Paul obviously was preaching. And the ruins, actually, of Ephesus are supposed to be very, very impressive. So um, I am looking forward to that. But in the meantime, let's now turn our attention to the Lord and, and ask him to bless our reading of his word. Please join me. Well, Sovereign Lord, I do pray that you would be glorified in our midst today. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the setting Uh, in which this book was written, but more importantly than that, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand why it's so important to us today. You didn't only intend this book to be written and read, uh, written for and then read by the Ephesian church. It was your desire, O Lord, that your people in every day, every age, every place, until the return of Christ, would have this book, would gain comfort and instruction from it, and would understand your church and your intentions for them better. I pray, O Lord, therefore, that you would help me not just to preach today, but to preach through this epistle, to bring home the the wonderful truths that Paul was seeking to convey to your people under your inspiration. And I pray now, Lord, that you would be with us. Help us, Lord, fix our attention on the word. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm just going to be reading Paul's brief introduction at the beginning of the letter here. Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, we're starting a new epistle. We've moved, uh, obviously, from the Old Testament right through to the New Testament. We've moved from uh, Canaan to Asia Minor, the place that is normally uh, referred to these days as Turkey. Um, We're going to be reading this book, Ephesians. Uh, The original Koine Greek name for this book was Pros Ephesios, or (laughs) Ephesius, which would mean to the Ephesians. The author, the person who wrote this particular letter, because it's always important uh, when you receive a letter to know who's talking to you, what his credentials are, why he has contacted you in the first place. The author of this letter identifies himself at the very beginning. Who is it? 
Paul, Paul an apostle. Now, there are um, uh, theories, modern day theories, and one of the things you gotta understand when you're reading commentaries these days or listening to prognosticators and so on, uh, on the various books of the Bible. There are a lot of men who are always coming up with new theories about the Bible, new theories about the authorship of various books and so on. One of the things you have to understand in the academic world is that uh, if they simply crank out the stuff that the church has always believed, nobody listens to them. For instance, if I write a solid reformed commentary, if someday, and I know my wife really wants me to write something at some point that goes into print, but if I were to say, I will write an, a, a commentary on Ephesians, and I sent it off and it was published by somebody like the Banner, and all it did was teach the substantial truths that the church has been teaching for hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years, I'd probably sell, oh, few hundred copies if it was very, very blessed, and you guys were very generous and said, well, the pastor wrote it, I suppose I should buy it, and stuff like that. <laughs> but that's essentially it. If I want to sell thousands of copies, I have to come up with some sort of new theory. So I would have to come up with something like uh, Andy Lincoln does in his particular commentary, identifying somebody else as the author of Paul, and then, ooh, who do you, oh, not the author of Paul, the author of Ephesians other than Paul. And uh, then everybody looks at, oh, who does he think wrote it? And why does he think they wrote it? And so on. But um, if you ask me, I believe that the church has been correct from the very beginning and that Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, was not a piece of pseudopigrapha, somebody claiming to be somebody else, but that honestly, Paul had written this letter. Um, it's not necessary to come up with any sort of other answer for it. Uh, it is it's substantially Pauline in its content. It agrees absolutely with whatever else Paul was writing. And so I, I think we should agree with the early church fathers, men like Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria, who uh, lived 50 or so years after this uh, epistle began to be circulated. They said Paul wrote it. And that's good enough for me, especially because I believe the word of God is inerrant and inspired. And therefore, if it says Paul, an apostle of God at the very beginning, I have great reason to believe that Paul, an apostle of God, wrote it. Now, the letter itself was not delivered by Paul. And he obviously, he did not send it by email. Uh, he did not even post it. He had to actually give it to somebody to carry to the Ephesians. Now let's just see how good you are on this. How, does anybody know who probably carried the letter to the Ephesians? <coughs> no, but that's a, good, that's a good choice. It's not a bad, not a bad choice at all. Marcus? Excuse me? Marcus this thing? No, 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 no. <laughs> guy by the name of Tychicus. <laughs> Tychicus probably carried this uh, letter along with the a letter to the Colossians. Holy mackerel, I've never had my glasses fall apart during the sermon, but this is the first time for everything, obviously. Now you see why I have this bevy of glasses up here for exactly this, just in case, you know, two or three suddenly fell apart. But, uh, and they made fun of me, ha! Anyway, um, the letter itself was delivered by Tychicus along with the letter to the Colossians. We don't have to speculate about that. The letter actually tells us in Ephesians 6.21. And one of, one of the things I would like to ask you to do is actually have your Bibles open because I'm going to be referring to various places in Scripture. I don't want you to take my word for any of this. I want you to be uh, searching it out and finding it for yourself. So we read in Ephesians 6.21, but that you may also know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all these things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. So 
It was Tychicus who was entrusted with this letter. There's a similar greeting, Colossians. Uh, the, obviously, they, they were nearby. You see Ephesus over there, and there's Colossae. So Tychicus was given both of these letters uh, to deliver them to their intended recipients. Now, the date when they were written uh, was probably about four years after his parting with the Ephesian elders at Miletus. He had uh, spoken to the presbytery there. We, we'll take a look at that in a little while in Acts chapter 20 and verses 6 through 38. So it was probably around A.D. 62. Now, this letter is known as one of the prison epistles, which means Paul wrote it from prison. Very good. Okay. Uh, The other prison epistles were Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Incidentally, uh, Onesimus, the uh, runaway slave, was given the letter uh, to Philemon to um, deliver to him at the same time. Uh, these were letters that were written by Paul during his first Roman imprisonment in AD 60 to 62. You know that Paul was released after that, that he was acquitted, uh, and he was able to continue ministering. Uh, he was, of course, arrested again, and eventually he was put to death uh, later on in about AD 64. But these epistles uh, were all um, written by him during his first imprisonment, and they refer to that imprisonment. You'll find him referring to the fact that he is in chains for the gospel in Ephesians 3.1, 4.1, and 6.20. So definitely a prison epistle. Now, who was he writing to? He was writing to the Ephesians who lived in the city of Ephesus, which was the regional capital of Asia, a very, very important place in Roman uh, government. Uh, It was famous particularly because it had a huge temple uh, in the midst of it. We could wish that the temple had been dedicated to uh, the Lord God Almighty, but instead it was dedicated to who? Does anybody remember? Uh, No, not Athena. Diana, Diana, uh, who is known by the Greeks as Artemis. Artemis. That's correct. Very good. So, um, and this temple was immensely famous. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was also a place where there was a lot of uh, of occult. practice there, whereas Corinth was a place of of gambling and leisure. Uh, Ephesus was better known as a place of learning, but not all that learning was good. They had a giant library, but uh, many of the books there were written uh, by supposed uh, magi, men who, and when we say magi, we immediately think of the men who came and visited uh, Jesus. But many of the magi were were supposed uh, wise men, but men who would be uh, steeped in the occult arts and astrology and so on. Uh, We know that when many came to faith uh, in Christ in Ephesus, uh, one of the first things they did was burn their occult books. Um, But it was a, a place of great learning, great instruction. Paul was intimately uh, aware of what was going on in Ephesus, and he knew this congregation because he had been there for quite some time. Paul remained in Ephesus for nearly three years. Uh, So he was a man who stayed in Ephesus for longer than he stayed in most other places. Ephesus was fairly centrally located. It was a place where you could reach the rest of Asia Minor, a place where you could reach also over the Aegean and into Greece. So it was a place where there was a lot of uh, travel going to and from various other destinations. It was a good place also for the training of future ministers. Now, 
if you want to, and I want to really encourage you to do this, um, go back to the book of Acts, and in particular read Acts 18, 19, and 20 at some point uh, in the coming weeks. Um, in fact, do it this week. It's, it won't take you very long at all. But you'll get an idea of Paul's involvement uh, with Ephesus. Now, he went there, Paul traveled to Ephesus, from Corinth, or specifically the port on the other side, on the Ephesian side, which was uh, Sencrea. He um, went there with Priscilla and Aquila, these two tent makers and friends of his. Um, he initially had gone, as was his practice, to the synagogue and had preached the gospel there. Uh, and then he had left Priscilla and Aquila there in order to move on. And a fellow by the name of Apollos had come to Ephesus. And Priscilla and Aquila had spoken to him and taught him the word more accurately because, of course, Apollos only knew about the baptism of John. He did not yet know about the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. Priscilla, in particular, uh, with her husband, explained the gospel better to him. And he became a vigorous refuter of the Jews and a prover that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Messiah. He showed from the scriptures we read in Acts 18.28 that Jesus is the Christ. So um, in Acts 19.8, Paul is back and we see him uh, persuading the Jews in the synagogue, speaking boldly to them that Jesus is the Christ. And one of the things that we learn about Ephesus is that Ephesus was a place where there were Jews and Gentiles uh, who were converted. In some areas, it was mostly Jews. In other areas, it was almost entirely Gentiles. Ephesus was a place with a very large Jewish population, and many of them came to a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the things that I want you to notice as you're going through the letter is how Paul is going to be talking to Jews and Gentiles and talking to them about how the middle wall of separation that originally divided them has now been taken down. The great unity that they now have in the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a word that we greatly need in our own age when there are so many forces that desire to separate Christians who desire for them to be separated according to their ethnicity or language or whatever. We need to remember that we are one in Christ, regardless of where we are, regardless of what nation we're in. We are all part of the same body of Christ. It was a wonderful thing to be reminded of that when I went to Uganda, that we're all part of the same kingdom, even though we may be separated by thousands of miles. Paul in Ephesus, we also learn in Acts eight, uh, chapter 19, while he was there, he established a school. He taught daily in the school of Tyrannus, uh, a philosopher. These philosophers would have their own schools of instruction. But uh, during the period uh, of the day when uh, the Greeks would be sleeping, Paul would be instructing and that for two years, he taught men about the Lord Jesus Christ. And in turn, we have here the first kind of proto-seminary the first place where we see men being raised up and taught the word of God and sent off. This is still incredibly important. One of the things that um, uh, Elder King and I and, and TCWM generally are very conscious of is that Africa is a place that has been widely evangelized. But one of the biggest problems that they have is that very few people are qualified really to simply open up the Bible and instruct people. They have not been taught. They didn't go through the training, the kind of training that Paul did in the temple, uh, or rather in the school of Tyrannus. And it's our, our great desire to see that happening 
within, uh, within those nations, uh, places not just like Uganda, but Rwanda, Kenya, the surrounding nations. We desire to see seminaries like Paul set up. This is not our idea. It's not something new. It's been there since the apostolic age. Ephesus was one of the central training grounds, and men from Ephesus then were able to move out through Asia Minor and indeed throughout all of uh, the Aegean uh, area. You'll remember also that Ephesus was the place where Paul was involved in a riot. Um, one of the things that uh, they um, were famous for in Ephesus, because they had this, this wonder of the world in the Temple of Diana, they had a great deal of religious tourism. One of the things that you notice immediately whenever you go to any sort of tourist trap is that there are people who are very zealous to sell the tourists, or in this case, the religious pilgrims, little trinkets and knickknacks to remind them of their travels there. Um, my father was always bringing back to me, he traveled throughout the world, and if I didn't get to go with him, he would always bring back you know, little things. I still have him trinkets from various places around the world that are sold. I used to think they were precious and I didn't realize that they were, you know, they were essentially just cheap knickknacks that were sold by people to gullible tourists, and uh, then I would get them. But one of the things that they did was they made little silver temples, little shrines, and you would take them home and you would put them in your own household shrine, and then you would kneel down and you would pray to Artemis, to this little replica of her temple. Sometimes you would actually buy the little shrine and then you would donate it directly to the temple, and then they would melt it down and make it into coin. But in any event, as the number of Christians increased, the men who made their living selling these religious knickknacks, you remember, were beginning to feel that, well, if everybody becomes a Christian, nobody is going to be buying our wares. And they, uh, they started a riot. You can read about that in Acts chapter uh, 19 to the end. By uh, God's grace, this was not a place where uh, Paul was, was uh, stoned. Um, uh, as a result of that rioting, but uh, eventually the rioting was subdued by the civil authorities. It was also um, a place where, because they had a, a set church structure, they had elders and so on, it was a place where there was a presbytery. And when Paul is traveling to Jerusalem, he stops at Miletus and he calls upon the Ephesian elders to come and to meet with him. Uh, so he essentially, he summons the Ephesian Presbytery. In Acts chapter 15, we see the first general assembly. Acts chapter 20, I would argue this is the first example of a presbytery where we have the elders from a particular location all being gathered. And he gives them an exhortation. And he says in particular, and when they had come to him, this is Acts chapter 20 and starting with verse 18. When they had come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility. With many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful and proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul was intimately involved with this congregation made up of people from widely divergent backgrounds, but he loved them and it was his desire that they would grow in Christ. And so that's, one of going, that's going to be one of the major themes of this particular letter, that they would continue to grow. And even after Paul left Ephesus, he didn't forget them. He sent one of his best disciples to minister to them and to be resilient in doing so, to deal with the, the heresies and the false teaching that had come in after he left. Does anybody remember who it was he sent? He wrote a letter to him from jail. What? Not Titus. Timothy. There you go. Very good. 
So first Timothy, another T guy, exactly. First Timothy 1.3, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So Timothy was given a very difficult call to reform the church in Ephesus that was already going off the rails. You remember in Acts chapter 20, Paul said, I know after I depart, savage wolves will come in from amongst your own number. And they'll deceive, they'll, they'll turn people in the wrong direction, they'll, they'll fill the church with the culture instead of filling the church with the word of God. And indeed that had happened. Later on, we remember in Revelation, Ephesus, the Ephesian church is one of the churches that God addresses directly. And he points out to them that they'd lost their first love. Who was supposed to be their first and their greatest love? Christ. They'd stopped loving him. They, they were doctrinally, they were still on point, but their love for Christ had grown cold. We uh, find out later on that um, they, or we find out from church history actually, that their, their love was renewed and they became uh, one of the, the shining examples of the church in Asia Minor. Now, one of the things that you will notice as you read Ephesians, particularly if you go on to the, uh, the book of Colossians, is how similar the two books are. A lot of people have noted that you can actually put them up against each other and you can see uh, how Ephesians in many places simply expands at greater length on many of the themes that Paul uh, addresses in Colossians. And sometimes Colossians actually goes into certain themes at greater length than Ephesians, but they're definitely related. Well, why? Well, the answer is he wrote them both at the same time from prison. Uh, and he wrote Ephesians directly after Colossians, and that's why it bears resemblance. You have the same apostle writing the same great and necessary truths to congregations that weren't too widely divided in very, very similar settings. So um, they were written about the, the same time. I hate to tell you this, but I have never encountered a, um, <laughs> in this lifetime, I have never encountered a pastor or a teacher uh, who has been employed uh, greatly by the Lord, who hasn't recycled material, who hasn't taken stuff from other, uh, other writings and so on, and when they've applied, used them again. Now, sometimes this can get to be ridiculous. I, I once, uh, I searched on, and it happened by accident, they found that uh, one uh, seminary professor, I will not identify him, had preached the same sermon 14 times uh, whenever he went to various places. It was the only sermon that he, uh, he preached. Uh, I would hope that he was pretty good at it by, the, by uh, time 14, but in any event, Paul um, as well would have been, he has the same themes in his mind, local congregation, of course there's going to be similarities between two things written from the same place to people in the same geographical area on the same subjects. Now, what is the theme of Ephesians? Funny story, although it was not funny when it happened. This is how my glasses break, incidentally. Um, wasn't funny when it happened. Uh, I went for my licensure exam many, many years ago. Um, this is actually before I went to Westminster Theological Seminary. I'd simply been taking classes at RTS Washington, D.C. And I, you know, I knew which end of the Bible was up, but to tell the truth, I, uh, they, were, they were very gracious to me, let's just say, the guys who interviewed me. I probably would have failed me. To the, it's kind of like, I would have failed me on my first driving exam as well. I was, and Joy knows exactly how I drove as a teenager. Uh, it wasn't just Jehu who drove furiously, I also did. So, a um, little Old Testament uh, uh, notification for you there. But in any event, I, I went before these men, and one of the questions that they asked me is, what is the theme of Ephesians? 
And my mind went back to Ephesians, 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 and immediately I was thinking Ephesians chapter 1, and I confidently said, as the cage stage Calvinist that I was, predestination! Predestination is the theme of Ephesians. And they looked at me like, oh, you poor misguided jumping at the bit fool. Um, actually, no. The main theme of Ephesians is not predestination, although predestination does figure largely in the first chapter as Paul grounds the work that God is doing in eternity past. They looked at me and they said, you know, very, very kindly, they said, no, I think you'll find that the church is the theme of Ephesians. And they are absolutely right. The, uh, it was the theme of Ephesians. And um, so before my ordination exam, which happened many, many years later, I went back and I studied uh, Ephesians uh, in case it ever came up again. And one of the things that I did, and I would recommend this commentary to you, is I, I read uh, William Hendrickson's uh, commentary on Ephesians. And one of the things that he does is he gives a, a mnemonic device attempting to remind people of what the theme of Ephesians is. And I will, uh, I'll share that with you in just a moment. It has to do with the eulogy at, uh, at the bottom there. But the objective, before I give you what eulogy stands for, the objective of this epistle that Paul wrote is to quote Alfred, to set forth the ground, the course, and the aim and the end of the church of the faithful in Christ. He speaks to the Ephesians as a type or example of the church universal. So whenever Paul is referring to the church and uh, when he speaks to the Ephesians, he's not just talking to the Christians in Ephesus. He's talking to the church broadly. That's to all the Christians. Now you remember in Ephesians 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, Paul first identifies himself. He says he's a messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he wants them to understand he did not appoint himself. As we are going to see as we go through Ephesians, one of the things that you will notice is Paul's emphasis on the idea that none of us call ourselves to whatever position we are in in the church. One of the things that we've been talking about uh, is we need more elders. We need more officers within the church generally. We need a new generation raised up. But we don't want to find men who have simply self-appointed themselves, um, who say, yes, I think this is what I am, without any sort of inward conviction, any sort of calling, any sort of gifting. Paul himself was manifestly gifted and then approved of by the church. He was a man who was particularly set apart by God. And that is what it is to be an apostle. Jesus reminds the first 12 apostles, you remember, he doesn't say, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He tells them that. He chooses all of his messengers. He chose all of his apostles. And he particularly chose Paul, didn't he? Paul was on the road to where when, Paul, uh, when Jesus called him? He was on the way to Damascus to persecute the church. But Jesus stopped him in his tracks, knocked him down, blinded him for a while, but he called him. He said, I have been crafting you. It's often the case that uh, God will, through a process that amazes us, bring us uh, into a position where we would never have expected to be. If you would ask my friends, I've mentioned this many a time, or my relatives, um, <laughs> when I was a young kid, do you think Andy will be a pastor in an evangelical church someday? After they, they stopped rolling around on the floor laughing, uh, they probably would say, no, of course he won't. It didn't seem to be the case, but God had other plans. God had other plans for Paul. It was his will, his goodwill, 
it was, we'll see, according to his good pleasure that he called Paul to be an apostle. And if you're a Christian here today, it was according to his good pleasure that he called you to be his servant. And he had plans for you from the very beginning of time, just as he had plans for Paul. Please understand that God does not leave planless, giftless Christians out there. He doesn't simply call you and say, now I'm done with you, now that you're in the kingdom. He has plans for you within his history of redemption. You may not know what they are yet, but he does. If he has called you, if you are elect, he's going to use you. And he wrote, obviously, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and he wanted to transmit to them the grace and peace that comes from relationship with God, a relationship that, as we were reminded this morning, can only come from having closed by faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church is composed of those who are called, and Paul wants them to know they're part of the church, but he wants to know them to know what the end of the church is. He wants them to know what life in the Holy Spirit is like. Uh, now, going to the euloge, this is a mnemonic device that Hendrickson came up with to help us to remember what it was. And um, if you've got a pen, if you've got a piece of paper, you might want to take this down. Um, why does he use euloge? Well, it's uh, short for eulogatos which means in Koine Greek, blessed. And it's a reference to Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So E-U-L-O-G-E, -E, from blessed. The first part uh, in this, the E, stands for eternal foundation. That is that the, our uh, calling is due to the eternal foundation in Christ that we have. The second thing is the universal scope. That's the you in Euloge. That is that the church embraces both Jew and Gentile. That was the, the two particular groupings that Paul broke the world down into at this point in time. But all the nations. That God is building a church that is universal in its scope. L stands for lofty goal. Uh, that it is God's intention that the church would be composed of all of his elect and that they would be, according to um, uh, God in Ephesians 3, in order that now to the principalities and the authorities in the heavenly places might be made known through the church the iridescent wisdom of God and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge in order that you may be filled to all the fullness of God, that God's people would have not just a measure of his love, but the fullness of it. And then O, um, that is organic unity amidst diversity. Uh, that they would remember that they are one in Christ. That although their calling is universal, they're not called to be separate. Finally, G, glorious renewal. You and I are being made again after the image of Jesus Christ. We are being conformed to his glorious image. That we put off the old man and be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And then finally... E, effective armor. You'll remember that from Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God, the full armor of God. And so that's a summary. Uh, if you were going through that and you've got the letters down, the E is uh, to be found mostly, the first E in chapter 1. The, two, uh, the U is found in chapter 2. The L is found in chapter 3. The O is found in chapter 4. And then the G and the E are chapters 4 through 6. Uh, e is 6 in particular.
Well, why is this book important to us? Okay, so it was important to the Ephesians. Why is it important to us? Well, I've discussed some of the, the, uh, the reasons for it. But one of the things that we see here is that, um, or we know from the time, is that Ephesians was written to a church that was part of the Roman Empire. Uh, the emphases in the, um, uh, that were about at the time were uh, heavy government influence and rule, uh, pluralism, and a general spirituality. Uh, many, many, many members of the Roman Empire would have called themselves very spiritual. He was writing to a people, therefore, who were looking for solutions to their problems. And one of the problems that they saw, I mean, they looked around them, they saw poverty, they saw difficulties, they saw all of these things. What's the solution? Many of them said it's government. The Roman government needs to take a greater hand. Others said, well, we need, we need this vague spirituality. We need mysticism. We need the occult and so on. Paul answers, no, this is not what we need. What we need is renewal. What we need is new birth. We need that unity that only Christ can bring. We need to be members of the church. We need to stop being children of wrath. We need to become members of the body of Christ under God's own son. So he preaches the great gospel message of salvation. And he says the end of all of this is that you would be made members of the church. And in effect, he is saying the church eventually will replace even the Roman Empire, earthly government, all of those things that people think are so important in the here and now, all of it will be subsumed into the church of Jesus Christ. And that's our great hope, that we would become new creations, that we would be made part of the family of God, knit together with Christ and then with one another, that there would be a unity that the world knows nothing of. The world is always seeking to divide and divide and divide. Paul says, no, this middle wall of separation has been cast down in the Lord Jesus Christ. In him, we are one part of the same body. So he is preaching the body of Christ, and then body life. How do we live if we are part of this church? And what are we looking forward to? What's the end goal? All of these things will be answered. And our problems aren't too terribly different. I mean, our technology has advanced quite considerably, but our essential problem is still the same. We have disunity. We have all of the same effects of the fall operating in our lives, all of the same fake and false conclusions as to what our problem is and how to deal with it and so on. We have a little more modern medicine in operation at this point in time and giving us false answers to our problems, but it's really no different from what Paul was dealing with. He was dealing with the same urbanites, the same hyper-individualism, the same totalitarian trends in government, the same vague spirituality, and fortune tellers and astrologers and so on. Time has advanced, but the problems are the same. And the answer to our problem is eternal goes back to the fall, doesn't it? Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. It's the same Jesus Christ that we find are true. Not just, not just the answer to our problems, but our true finality in the one who our destiny is caught up with if we're Christians. We, you and I, brothers and sisters, have been created to glorify God and will do so as part of his church. Paul wants us to know that. He wants us to be people who take the church very seriously. Christians today have a very low view of the church. One of the things that you will see in this book is that Paul has the highest possible view of the church because he says it's the body of Christ of whom he is the head. 
And I pray that as we go through this book, you will gain that, that same kind of esteem for the church as the place where God's people are brought in, grown up in grace, molded together, and then taught to look forward to that day when our communion will be perfect. Here we have separations brought about by geography and differences in language and so on. But there's a day coming when the church will be perfect, where the church will have a closeness that is greater even than the closeness that we experience in marriage. Imagine that. A communion so perfect that we know each other even as we are known. Well, let's go before the Lord and let's ask for the advent of that day to come soon. God, our gracious Father, we do thank you that while we remain here on earth, you've given us so many encouragements. You've told us in your word again and again to look forward to that day when all things will be made new, when even creation will be renewed, when all of the effects of the fall will be gone. We want that to happen in our own lives. We're sick of the sin in our own hearts, and we want our church to resemble the church that we read about at the opening of worship. We want it to to look like that here and now. We pray, Lord, therefore, that you would help us to strive for that perfection, the greatest, uh, the greatest thing that we, can, that we can look for here on earth is to be people who are genuinely being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and spreading his gospel far and wide and waiting for his certain return. Lord, would you do that in us? Help us then to grow as we read this book that your servant Paul gave to us. We thank you for it.